0: section nineteen of the watergate report volume two this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox dot org final report of the senate select committee on presidential campaign activities volume two C disposition of the contribution and subsequent ampi white house contacts in nineteen sixty nine one disposition of the contribution neither nelson nor parr expressed to the select committee any knowledge of or for that matter interest in what was done with the one hundred thousand dollar contribution seymour says that he felt certain That the money was going to congressional candidates in the 1970 election although before the delivery of the money Seymour and kalmbach discussed the practice in prior administrations of quote piggyback contributions contributions solicited by the white house for congressional candidates there apparently was no discussion of the use of the contribution and it remains undisputed that no republican congressional fundraising committee names were provided to Seymour or anyone else connected with AMPI at the time of the delivery or any time thereafter in 1969. In fact, the money was, according to Kalmbach, commingled with the 1968 surplus funds, which eventually went to Sloan in 1972 for the president's reelection campaign. Ehrlichman essentially confirmed this. In the meantime, Part of the money was expended for such unusual campaign purposes as the political investigative work of Anthony Ulasevich, detailed elsewhere in the committee's report, and the support of the candidacy of Alabama Governor Brewer in a 1970 state primary against George Wallace. 2. Contacts between AMPI and White House officials in 1969 after the contribution. The contribution was made in connection with AMPI's three goals, including, quote, access to the White House. Whereas Seamer had been in contact with Kalmbach for approximately four months before the contribution was made without apparent results, thereafter, it only took several days to arrange the first of a series of AMPI White House meetings. Kalmbach testified... It was clear in my mind that, as a result of this contribution, or further contributions by Mr. Seymour and his clients, that meetings would be arranged for Mr. Seymour and his clients to meet with certain people within the White House, to put forth his case on behalf of his clients. In fact, in the same August 2 diary entry, referring to the milk producers' objectives, Kalmbach also noted, quote, Milt and clients to meet with Harry Dent, and Jack Gleason, end quote. on August nineteenth, nineteen sixty-nine, Nelson Parr and Seamer met with Harry Dent in his White House office. Seamer testified that the purpose of the meeting was twofold: to have the AMPI leadership get acquainted with Dent, and to invite the president to attend the annual meeting of the Associated Dairymen, an association of the three dairy co-ops ampi di and mid am of which nelson was manager at the august nineteen meeting they presented a written memorandum to dent elaborating on the invitation parr testified that they felt that the attendance of the president at that annual meeting and at an ampi convention would increase the stature of dairy leaders particularly the then current leadership of nelson and parr in a staff interview dent stated that he had no recollection of the meeting and that if such a meeting occurred it would have been a routine massage session kalmbach testified that he talked to Seymour three or four times after august and perhaps contacted the white house to arrange Seymour's subsequent meetings with white house officials kalmbach testified i feel relatively certain that anyone who he met with it was probably the result of my making calls to arrange such meetings," End quote. Kalmbach said. There was no prior understanding of any favorable action that would necessarily result from such contacts. However, he testified that the top administration officials were all made aware that Seamer represented a contributor. Footnote: Kalmbach added that in the case of at least Mitchell, Haldeman, and Stans they knew seymour's client had contributed that year in a staff interview mitchell said that at some point kalmbach told him that he was receiving contributions from milk producers but he said that this information made no impression on him and he could not recall the date as is indicated below this represented only the beginning of what the Select Committee has found to be a continuing involvement through 1972 by Mitchell and Haldeman in solicitations of and contributions by the Dairy Trusts to the President's reelection campaign. End footnote. No more money was delivered to Kalmbach by AMPI in 1969. Kalmbach testified that he thinks the remaining $150,000 was not forthcoming because of the dairy people's dismay at not meeting with more White House officials. Kalmbach says Seymour told him that the, quote, response wasn't really what we had hoped for, end quote. The following year, the milk producers stepped up their lobbying efforts and communicated their intention to raise the level of contributions to, quote, $1 million, $2 million, or even more. Unquote. d corporate funding of the one hundred thousand dollar contribution Sometime before the end of nineteen sixty nine the milk producers instituted an elaborate scheme to conceal the one hundred thousand dollar contribution delivered to kalmbach the scheme developed by top ampi employees involved funneling several hundred thousand dollars through a number of lawyers and consultants retained by ampi and using the laundered money to replenish the tape account from which the one hundred thousand dollars was originally withdrawn as a result tape never reported the contribution and kalmbach and white house aides were free to use the contribution without any public disclosure of its source or public accounting for its disposition one nelson isham pearson meeting W. DeVere Pearson, a former White House aide in the Johnson administration and a Washington attorney whose firm was retained by AMPI beginning in early 1969, advised the AMPI leaders sometime in the fall of that year that tape was required to make public reports to the clerk of the House of its contributions to candidates for federal office. According to Pearson the ampi people informed him that he was quote the only lawyer who has ever told us we have to report end quote ampi officials realized in late nineteen sixty nine that they had a problem since the one hundred thousand dollar contribution exceeded the legal limitation of five thousand dollars to any one candidate or committee they could not report it in the form it was made without admitting a violation of the corrupt practices act footnote the applicable provision prohibited a contribution of more than five thousand dollars in any one year to any one candidate or political committee this limit was removed by the federal election campaign act of 1971 which became effective on april 1972. end footnote kalmbach did not give them any committee names to permit lawful reporting apparently because according to nelson and jacobson he didn't want the contribution reported at all since the contribution could not be reported lawfully or recovered from kalmbach ampi officials decided to engage in a cover-up of the illegal contribution on december 8 1969 pearson flew to san antonio and met that night with nelson and isham in nelson's office Pearson says that, although he was not told of the specifics, he understood from Nelson that tape had a reporting problem with respect to some contribution that either had already been made, or was committed and was going to be made, presumably prior to the end of the year. It was decided that if it were possible to reimburse tape for the amount of the contribution before the end of the year, tape would not have to report the payment to Kalmbach at the meeting nelson reportedly concluded i believe we ought to be able to call on friends of ampi to help defray the obligation pearson says that nelson then listed a number of attorneys and consultants some of whom pearson knew as the friends who would be expected to participate according to notes taken by isham at the meeting The $100,000 was to be recouped in amounts of $10,000 each from the following eight attorneys and consultants then retained by AMPI. Pearson, Joe Long, Frank Masters, Stuart Russell, James Jones, Richard McGuire, Clifford Carter, and Ted Van Dyke. In addition, four AMPI employees, Lily, Parr, j g anderson and leo suttle were each to give five thousand dollars for a total from all twelve of one hundred thousand dollars footnote a ninth individual who was an associate at that time with the firm of Jacobson and long was also included in the list of attorneys and consultants with two question marks beside his name apparently he did not participate in the payback scheme End footnote. the twelve were to recoup the money from ampi in the following manner the eight outside conduits were each to bill ampi twenty thousand dollars to cover the ten thousand dollar payment plus their excess income taxes incurred because of the billing the four employees were each to receive the five thousand dollars in the form of an expense advance from ampi thus The scheme would have cost AMPI approximately $180,000. Pearson himself agreed to make a contribution and to contact Maguire and Van Dyke, and AMPI people were to contact the others. Ultimately, the four employees did not participate, and instead, as explained in detail below, the money was paid back by the outside lawyers and consultants only most of whom, it should be noted, claim ignorance of the scheme. The plan, as formulated and executed, involved the diversion of corporate funds for political purposes. Nelson does not specifically recall meeting with Pearson, but states that he authorized the plan and takes full responsibility for it. In the days following the meeting between Nelson, Pearson, and Isham, the ampi officials began to implement their plan two one hundred thousand dollar loan to lilly time was of the essence since tape was scheduled to file a report with the clerk of the house covering the calendar year of nineteen sixty nine tape had to be repaid the one hundred thousand dollars by the end of the year however pearson says that he told nelson and esham at their meeting that each conduit was permitted under the five thousand dollar a year contribution limitation to contribute to tape for the contribution in question only five thousand dollars in nineteen sixty nine and a second five thousand dollars the following calendar year however this would have resulted in reimbursing tape only half the one hundred thousand dollars by the end of the year therefore it was decided at the december eight meeting or within a day or two thereafter that AMPI employee Bob Lilly would borrow the entire $100,000 and repay tape before December 31, 1969, and that Lilly would then be repaid by the conduits over a period of time stretching into the 1970 calendar year. When Lilly was told of the plan, he protested to Nelson so vigorously that he almost lost his job. He suggested that AMPI could get the money back and re-contribute it to 20 state Republican committees and thus comply with the $5,000 limitation without the use of a conduit scheme. According to Lilly, Nelson ruled out that alternative by telling him that the White House did not trust the regular Republican Party structure to transfer the money to Kalmbach. Footnote. Isham said in a staff interview before Lily testified that he made a similar suggestion to Nelson, who told him that was impossible. End footnote. Lily finally agreed to participate in the plan and borrow the money. On december seventeenth, nineteen sixty nine, Lily completed a loan application and borrowed one hundred thousand dollars from Citizens National Bank in Austin. Executing a sixty-day note at an interest rate of eight and one-quarter percent. Jacobson, who was chairman of the board and two other members of the bank's loan discount committee, Morgan E. Pierce and Walter Donald Roberts, approved the loan. The loan was secured by a one hundred thousand-dollar certificate of deposit of AMPI, and pledged by Lilly, who signed a security agreement on the seventeenth. Footnote. The CD was registered in the name of Milk Producers Incorporated, apparently issued to AMPI's predecessor several months previously before the formation of AMPI. End footnote. Stetler, the bank president, says he does not remember whether Lilly had the authority to use co-op funds to secure a personal loan to himself. In fact, there is no evidence that any such authority existed lilly deposited the proceeds of the loan into the tape account on the same day however to replace the apparently defective pledge by lilly of a corporate certificate of deposit Isham, in his capacity as tape trustee wrote a tape check dated december nineteen to the bank to purchase a one hundred thousand dollar certificate of deposit for tape and then In a second security agreement apparently backdated to december 17 pledged that tape certificate of deposit in lieu of that of ampi to secure the loan to lily thus the transaction had gone full circle lily had borrowed one hundred thousand dollars and had repaid tape which in turn had used the money to pledge a one hundred thousand dollar certificate of deposit to secure the loan to lily since tape did not report the pledge of the certificate of deposit as of december 31 1969 the contribution to kalmbach had been concealed whereas the note was supposed to be paid in 60 days it was not paid in full until nearly a year later in fact the cover-up of this and other corporate transactions and payments from ampi to the conduits continued at least into 1972 three the alleged conduits based on his records submitted to the select committee lilly testified that he received the money to repay the one hundred thousand dollar principal plus interest on his loan from outside attorneys and consultants named in the meeting of nelson isham and pearson although each of the alleged conduits interviewed denied having knowingly participated in the plan to divert corporate funds for political purposes there is evidence that at least some did so lilly testified i felt that they knew that they could be reimbursed it was quite obvious because bills were coming in in addition there is evidence that the ampi board of directors was informed of the conduit scheme and the diversion of hundreds of thousands of dollars of corporate funds to cover the one hundred thousand dollar contribution to kalmbach and subsequent political contributions according to nelson and Lilly, the ampi board was told at more than one board meeting that legal fees were high because some of the fees went to reimburse some attorneys for political contributions nelson believes that stuart russell and another alleged conduit, Frank Masters, as well as John Butterbrote, president of the board, were present at those meetings. Footnote. Masters, an attorney for AMPI, who attended nearly all its board meetings and helped prepare the minutes, denied that such discussions took place. One of the meetings at which the matter was allegedly discussed was the meeting in Las Vegas held in December 1970, which the board minutes indicated, Butterbroat attended. Kiefer Howard, an AMPI employee, says that he attended the meeting and that at least the matter of high attorney's fees was discussed. Furthermore, he says that he believed that the money going to Lilly was used for political contributions. End footnote. Although Masters and Butterbrook deny it, Russell, himself one of the conduits, confirms Nelson's account. The following is a description of the participation in the payback plan of each of the alleged conduits. A. Stuart Russell. Stuart Russell, a lawyer in Oklahoma City who has represented dairy cooperatives for many years, was retained by MPI in 1967 and then by AMPI in 1969 at a retainer of $1,000 per month plus an hourly rate for work done and expenses russell served as a conduit of co-op money to lilly and others and alone received over three hundred thousand dollars in bogus fees to cover his payments and taxes but he denied knowing the money went for political purposes in december 1969 lilly contacted russell and said he was told to get five thousand dollars from russell after checking with nelson and receiving his approval, Russell sent the money by check to Lilly on December 19. At the same time, according to Russell's longtime assistant and secretary, Jane Hart, a bill for $8,000 was sent to AMPI. The same procedure was repeated in January 1970, when Lilly requested and received another $5,000 from Russell, who then billed AMPI. Lilly made numerous other requests to Russell in the next two years to cover additional payments on the $100,000 loan and for other political purposes, including monies that Lilly made available to Jake Jacobson, which Jacobson represented were for John Connolly's use. In each instance, Russell or Hart either sent a check to Lily or cashed a check, and Lily came to Oklahoma City to retrieve the cash. On each occasion, a corresponding phony billing was sent to AMPI to cover the payment, plus Russell's estimated excess taxes incurred as a result of the billing. In all, Russell paid Lilly a total of $89,500 and other AMPI employees another $20,000, and contemporaneously billed AMPI $158,950 jane hart says that she billed ampi for russell's estimated excess taxes but that quote, there was no fixed amount or percentage end quote, that was billed above the amount of the payment to lilly footnote prior to the issuance of the wright report jane hart prepared an affidavit for submission to the select committee detailing russell's payments to lilly and others and indicating a total amount different from that reflected in the Wright Report. Subsequent to the publication of the Wright Report, Russell informed Wright, by letter, that the Wright Report's information was incorrect in that regard, and submitted his own figures, which are consistent with those in the Hart Affidavit, reflected in the Select Committee's report. End footnote. According to Russell and Hart, too little was billed, so that in both 1971 and 1972, Russell was compelled to go to AMPI for more money to cover his taxes for the previous year. In April 1971, Russell was given an AMPI check for $50,000 to pay for his excess 1970 income taxes. The payment was apparently made in the form of a loan to Russell, who signed a promissory note payable to AMPI. However, there was an escape clause. The note provided that if Russell were to die, the obligation would be waived. Also, Russell's monthly retainer was increased from $1,000 to $6,000 to cover his monthly payments to AMPI on the note. Russell made only six payments on the note, totaling $16,666.68 in 1971. In April 1972, Russell again discovered that his billings to AMPI did not compensate him adequately for his excess 1971 income tax liability. In settlement of his, quote, claims, Russell was provided with another payment, approved by AMPI's new general manager, George Merrin, of $66,321.48, and the remaining obligation on the 1971 note approximately thirty six thousand dollars plus interest was forgiven thereafter russell's retainer was eliminated and he supplied legal services to ampi and submitted itemized bills for his actual legal services only until october 1973 when his relationship with ampi was terminated in all the committee has determined that russell's billings to ampi not for legal services, but for monies delivered from 1969 forward to Lilly and others associated with AMPI, amounted to over $300,000. Footnote. This includes the following. Direct billings for payments to Lilly, $138,950. Direct billing for payment to Hollowell, $20,000. April 1971 payment, $50,000. April 1972 payment, $66,321.48. Excess retainer, April 1971 to March 1972, 12 times $5,000, $60,000. Total, $335,271.48. Less. Payments to AMPI on loan, $16,666.68, total $318,604.80. End footnote. Russell denies that he knew the monies he paid to Lilly were for political purposes. He says that he was told by Nelson at the outset that the monies were needed for legitimate legal services by AMPI but that since ampi management was being criticized by ampi members for excessive direct home office expenditures he decided to account for the expenses as additional fees to russell footnote the co-op general and administrative expenses including most legal expenses were paid from the san antonio headquarters budget thus to some extent russell's explanation does not appear logical since his fees in lieu of someone else's alleged secret legal fees were also billed to the quote, home office End footnote. with regard to russell's knowledge of the purpose of his payments to lilly and others lilly testified that he told russell that the payments to him were used for political purposes and that in the fall of 1973 Russell told him that he hadn't submitted high enough bills to AMPI to cover the monies for political contributions. Moreover, Russell has told AMPI's attorneys that Nelson repeatedly stated to him that political contributions by attorneys ought to be treated as a cost of doing business, and that he expected attorneys to, quote, take this into account, end quote, in billing the co-op. Indeed, Russell admits that he attended an AMPI board meeting in Las Vegas in December 1970, at which Nelson said, according to Russell, that political contributions should be an expense borne by AMPI, not the attorneys involved. A contemporaneous note, allegedly written by Russell himself to Bob Lilly, indicates that he knowingly billed AMPI for at least one political contribution. In 1970, Russell gave $5,000 to Tom Townsend of AMPI, who, in turn, used it to make a political contribution. Footnote Lilly testified that one payment of $5,000 in June 1970 and another of $10,000 in September 1970 were made by Russell in this manner. Townsend testified to one $5,000 transaction only in September 1970 end footnote lilly who approved a number of russell's phony billings says that russell then billed ampi for the payment and enclosed with the bill a note addressed to lilly which lilly provided to the select committee on november seventy three, explaining that the bill represented the payback to russell for the contribution if they were ignorant of these transactions at the time AMPI leaders apparently learned shortly after Nelson was removed in January 1972 of the magnitude of the Russell transactions. As noted above, in April 1972, Russell received from AMPI a final settlement worth over $100,000 for his conduit activities. It is undisputed that Russell met with George Merrin, AMPI's new general manager, and butterbrot in late january nineteen seventy two to seek payment for his excess taxes resulting from transactions in nineteen seventy one they assured russell that there would be no more of those transactions and agreed to meet his request although they claimed they did not know that the prior transactions were illegal Baron and butterbrot did not press russell to tell them what he knew and russell apparently told them only that if he were called to testify in court about these transactions he would plead the fifth amendment neither Merrin nor butterbrot assumed responsibility for any illegality in connection with the russell settlement butterbrot explained they had decided to honor all commitments of prior management and that he did not insist on disclosure because it was not our obligation to investigate To find out whether there was wrongdoing or wasn't, Marin says that he relied on opinion of counsel to justify the Russell settlement. End of section 19. Recording by Linda Johnson.